We need to trust God's sovereignty and be willing, listen to this, to let people walk away. Do not compromise the gospel by giving a truncated message, by promoting some easy believism, by trying to convince someone to say some prayer, to sign some card. That is not true salvation. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. Johns County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 10.15 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, I want you to take your Bibles this morning and be turning again to the Gospel of Mark. We want to return to our exposition of this Gospel. And this morning we find ourselves in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. The title of the message, Kingdom Evangelism 101. And when you find your place there, I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I begin reading in verse 17, and I'll read down through verse 22. Now hear God's word. And as he, that is Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. You may be seated and let's bow and ask for God's help. Our Father, we read a very sobering passage of Scripture in many ways, a very sad account of a man who loved his wealth, his material wealth, more than the concept of spiritual wealth. Father, we pray that this passage may serve as a warning to us We also pray that it might serve as an example of how to be an effective witness for you, a witness for your kingdom. So bless our time, we pray, for your glory. We ask for your help and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Twice at the beginning of this passage, once in verse 17 and then again in verse 20, Jesus is referred to as a teacher. The rich young ruler refers to Jesus as teacher. He addresses Jesus as a teacher. Jesus, of course, was more than a teacher, but he wasn't less than a teacher. Jesus taught us many things by the way that he lived his life, by the example that he set. Jesus taught us many things about doctrine and what we are to believe. But Jesus was also an instructor on some very practical issues. As a teacher, Jesus instructs us in three separate areas that we're going to look at over the next three weeks. First, in verses 17 through 22, 
we see Kingdom Evangelism 101, where Jesus teaches us by example and precept what it means to be a good witness for Christ. We see, secondly, something about Kingdom Economics 101 in verses 23 through 31, following the episode with the rich young ruler, Jesus uses it as an opportunity to teach a lesson to the disciples and thus to us about economics. And then third, we see something about Kingdom Ethics 101 in verses 32 through 45, where Jesus teaches us about the importance of humility, that part of being a member or citizen of Christ's kingdom means that we are humble, that we are not filled with pride. But it all begins with this episode with the rich young ruler. You know the story well. The rich young ruler really exemplifies one who tries to enter the kingdom. He tries to acquire salvation by earning it. Such stands in stark contrast, as we saw two weeks ago, to the children that were coming to Jesus in verses 13 through 16 who possessed nothing and did absolutely nothing, and yet Jesus said these children were part of the kingdom of God. This man is the exact opposite of that. He's trying to do everything he can to work his way into the kingdom. This, of course, leads Jesus um, to tell him how he truly must enter the kingdom of God. It teaches us about biblical evangelism. Now, we live in a world in Christendom in which there are many books that abound as to the importance of evangelism, evangelism techniques, evangelism methods, so on and so forth, usually very Arminian in theology, usually very pragmatic in methodology, usually very man-centered in anthropology, and therefore I think that it's important to lay some groundwork, some basic principles are in order, in order to understand the biblical intent of evangelism. First, by me telling to you the place of evangelism. The place of evangelism flows from the organized church. That becomes very clear in the New Testament. The church is God-ordained by Jesus to be the agent of evangelism. The apostles were the nucleus of the church. They were commissioned by Christ to go and make disciples in Matthew chapter 28. In Acts 13, for example, the church at Antioch sent forth Barnabas and Paul as missionaries. The church is the great agent of evangelistic work. Now, this doesn't mean that individuals can't engage in evangelism, but it does mean that the organized church does not leave it to individual members or voluntary associations that aren't sanctioned by the church. That includes mission boards. Missionary work and evangelism is to be an outflow of the organized church. This is the way that God designed it. And the reason for this is because God is not merely after the salvation of individual souls, but he is about adding these saved souls to the church and building his kingdom. So the place of evangelism flows from the organized church. Secondly, I would want to tell you that the proclamation in evangelism involves several realities. Several realities about the gospel we need to remember in order not to present a truncated message of the gospel, a sort of easy believism of our day. First of all, we need to recognize that the gospel is a story. It's a story about Jesus sent by the Father, virgin born, living a perfect life, having an atoning death for sinners, being resurrected, ascending to the right hand of God to rule and to reign. 
Every part of that story matters. It matters that Jesus was virgin born. It matters that Jesus died on the cross. It matters that we affirm the resurrection. It matters that we affirm the ascension and that the kingdom of God is here. It is a story about us. It is a story about God. But it is not merely a story. The gospel is also a doctrine, specifically about Christ, the fact that he is the God-man, the fact that his substitutionary, vicarious atonement is essential to truly understanding the gospel. Third, the gospel is also an invitation. Jesus was very clear that all were to come to him. He said, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We are to invite all sinners to Christ. We affirm the doctrine of election, but that does not mean that we don't invite all sinners. Fourth, the gospel is a promise. You remember what Paul told the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. We need to be optimistic as we preach the gospel and promising salvation to sinners because we don't know who the elect are, but we know that the truly elect will come to Christ and if they come to Christ, they have been promised salvation. The gospel is also an appeal Ezekiel 33.11, the words of God, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? It is an appeal. We, we are to appeal to sinners. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, so we implore others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. There should be an appeal and an urgency in our message. The gospel is also a demand. Law and gospel merge. The gospel becomes law because God commands that man repent. And that means that it is also a command. The gospel is a story, but not merely a story. The gospel is a doctrine. It is an invitation. It is a promise. It is an appeal. It is a demand, and it is a command. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17 and verse 30. He is not just a savior, but he is also a king. And that little last point is important to point out because as Jesus witnesses to the rich young ruler, he does not set forth before him an easy believism. He teaches this man that he needs Christ, but he needs Christ not only as a savior, but also as a king. R.B. Kuyper, in his book entitled God-Centered Evangelism, makes a very profound statement. He says, and I quote, In Christian evangelism, the cross of Christ and his crown belong together. What God has put together, let not the evangelist put asunder. The cross of Christ, that Jesus frees us from our sin, and the crown of Christ that we are placed under as law go together. And if you do not preach the law along with the gospel, you are not preaching a true gospel. That becomes explicitly clear in this account of Jesus and the rich young ruler. What do we learn here in verses 17 through 22? Well, very simply, we learn three principles about kingdom evangelism. Three principles about kingdom evangelism learned from Jesus' run-in with this man we call the rich young ruler. First of all, 
We learn about what I want to call the encounter principle, secondly, the engagement principle, and third, the evaluation principle. This is very practical, and hopefully it will help you in your day-to-day witnessing for Christ. Number one, let's consider the encounter principle from verse 17. The Bible says, and as he was sitting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him, that is before Jesus, and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? When it says there in verse 17 that Jesus was setting on his journey, it means that he had left the house in Perea, chapter 10 and verse 10, where Jesus had blessed the children. He's departing there with the 12. He's setting out on his journey toward Jerusalem. He's setting out on his journey journey to Jerusalem, obeying the Father to die for sinners. And as he was on his way, verse 17 says he encountered a man. Now Matthew calls him in Matthew 19.20 a young man. Luke calls him in Luke 18.8 a ruler. But all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say that he was rich. For example, the end of verse 22 Mark says he had great possessions. Matthew also says that in Matthew 19.22. And on Luke's part, he simply says that he was extremely rich in Luke 18.23. That's why we call him the rich young ruler. He was more than likely a ruler of a local synagogue. He had social status. He had economical status. And he had religious status or clout. Three significant features about this encounter. Number one, notice how he came. It says that he ran up to Jesus, gathering up his long outer tunic so he wouldn't trip, exposing his legs, which no man did in this culture. That was an act of shame. He came dashing toward Jesus. How he came running reveals his desperation. But also what he did when he came, notice verse 17 says, he knelt before him, that is before Jesus, falling to the ground. His running revealed his desperation, but his kneeling revealed his humiliation. Not only how he came and what he did when he came, but also who he addressed Jesus as. Notice he addresses him as good teacher. He's coming to Jesus in the middle of the day. Not like Nicodemus did, who was a good teacher himself, who came in the middle of the night under the cover of darkness. This man has no shame, pulling up his outer tunic, exposing his legs, running. This man with religious, social, economic clout comes to Jesus in desperation. His running reveals his desperation, his kneeling reveals his humiliation, And his question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life, reveals a degree of perception. What exactly did he perceive Jesus could offer? Well, it's revealed in the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He possessed desperation, humiliation, and perception, but obviously he didn't possess salvation. But he perceived enough to know that Jesus possessed something that he could have. He knew that in Jesus could be provided the way, the truth, and the life. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What was he asking? Well, to inherit eternal life means to have treasure in heaven, as Jesus says there later in the passage in verse 21. To inherit eternal life is to have treasure in heaven. It also means to enter the kingdom of God, verse 23. 
It also means, verse 26, to be saved. To inherit eternal life means to have the treasure of heaven. It means to enter the kingdom of God. It means to be saved. This man, just to put it to you very simply, is afraid to die and he doesn't know where he's going to go when he dies. Undoubtedly influenced by the scribes and Pharisees, righteous works-oriented teaching. This man feared that there was something in his life he had yet failed to do. He had worked hard his whole life, perhaps even receiving an inheritance himself from his parents, working hard to make that money grow. He was a young man. He was a rich man. He had achieved societal and religious and economic status as a rising ruler of the synagogue. And yet, with beating chest and gasping for air, running to Jesus, he was desperate to know what else he must do to inherit eternal life. This is a self-made man, isn't it? This is a proud man. This is a man that's a cut above others. And yet, he possessed this bothersome fear down deep inside, this nagging guilt, this unsuppressible desire to acquire certain knowledge from Jesus the good teacher as to his eternal status. The question was not, is there an eternity? But the question was, where will he go in that eternity? Will he go as a citizen of God's eternal kingdom or as a hell-bound enemy? This is the encounter Jesus has with this desperate man. And I want you to understand this morning, the picture you have of this man is the picture of sinners around you. This is a picture of your neighbors, your co-workers. This is a picture of your unbelieving relatives through our lives, through our lips, as citizens of Christ's kingdom, We hold a powerful influence over sinners because we have the only answers that will give them peace of mind and peace of soul. We are not Jesus, but the life-giving power of Jesus is seen in his body, right? The church. And so our encounters with the world will be much like Jesus' encounter with this man. They will naturally be drawn to us as they were naturally drawn to Jesus. The sick, the sorrowful, the pitied of the world, the desperate of the world like this man. Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer such a person. Jesus sets before us that sort of example. Jesus was ready. Jesus was on his way. Jesus was doing the business of the Father when he sovereignly and providentially encountered this man. Jesus did not pursue this man. This man pursued Jesus. And it may sound strange to you, but I think that is the normal way evangelism works. It works in the normal warp and woof of life as we encounter sinners that God has providentially placed in our path, in our workplace, in our school, in our neighborhood, in our community, that we must make the most of these encounters. Jesus, would you agree with me, had a busy schedule? Jesus, would you agree with me, had an important mission to accomplish? In fact, it's stated in verse 45 of this chapter, the central verse of this entire book, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And yet he came to serve and he had time to serve this man in this encounter. 
And as we're going to see, Jesus was faithful to the truth of the gospel. Faithful even when the result did not yield a positive result. We learn from this that faithfulness to the gospel is not necessarily equivalent with successfulness in seeing conversions. As far as we know, this man never converted to the gospel. He never entered the kingdom. And yet Jesus still spent time to tell him how he could enter the kingdom. So that's the first principle, very simple. I call it the encounter principle. Where are you at in your life? What do you do day in and day out? How many sinners do you interact with? How many sinners ask you for the hope that lies within you? And how do you treat these sinners? The encounter principle. But that leads us secondly to what I want to call the engagement principle, verses 18 and 19. And here we see the power of questions. Notice how Jesus engages this rich young ruler. Verse 18 says, Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Verse 18 Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? And then he answers it, no one is good except God alone. Not exactly a warm response. But Jesus' response was ice cold not to shut down the engagement, but to build the conversation on the ground of truth. Uh, You can look at it this way. Jesus' response to this man was like a splash of cold water in this man's face to awaken him to two realities. Number one, to awaken him to the reality that, that the man did not know it was to God that he had asked this question. This man apparently has no clue that he is in the presence of deity. Now some liberal scholars will suggest that Jesus is claiming here that he is less than divine by saying that no one is good except God alone. Of course, that is absolutely hogwash. No one is good except God alone is not a denial of Christ's deity, but an affirmation of it. It's an affirmation that there is only one God and that he alone is good. He is indirectly telling this man that he is in the presence of God. Whether the man actually saw it or not, the text does not say. I'm inclined to think that he still was clueless by the end of the conversation. But this man would have been familiar with the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. He was aware of Deuteronomy 6, which among other things affirms God's oneness, that there is only one good, and that is found in the one God. He was familiar with 2 Chronicles 16.34, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. That statement was made, by the way, also in Psalm chapter 118 and 2 Chronicles 5.13 in corporate worship. He was a ruler of the synagogue when trumpets were played at the temple and the children of God would say that God is one. He was familiar with Psalm 145 verse 9, the Lord is good to all, his mercy is over all that he has made. He knew that God alone was good. And yet, apparently, he was unaware that Jesus was God. 
So Jesus responds this way in verse 18. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. To tell him, look, I am God. But he also tells him this to awaken him, and this is very critical to understand, to this man's superficial understanding of goodness. His superficial understanding of goodness because he thought he was good enough to get into the kingdom. In fact, it's sort of ironic. He really had a low view of Jesus in a sense because he only thought Jesus was good, but he didn't think Jesus was God. And he thought he was probably just as good as Jesus. Here is someone who lives the sort of life that I live, another religious man, which shows not only that he had a low view of Jesus, but he had a very low view of depravity and a very high view of himself. The reason that Jesus cites the laws here in verse 19, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, is because the problem is not the law, the problem is the human heart. 1 Timothy 1.8 says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul says in Romans 7, 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Jesus upholds God's law because God's law declares and defines God's character, his perfect righteousness, his holiness, his goodness. The law is the standard and as the standard, it reveals man's sinfulness and man's wickedness, but never his goodness. And this man thought he was good. This man thought he was filled with goodness, so Jesus repeats the law to reveal to the man the exceeding sinfulness of his heart and his wickedness. That even this man's own righteousness cannot be defined as goodness when compared to God's goodness. God alone is good. Isaiah says that our righteousness is as filthy rags in Isaiah 64. Jesus would say on another occasion in Matthew 5, 48, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus is setting up for him the law of God to expose his sin. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 3.24, the law serves as a tutor meant to lead sinners to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The rich young ruler had referred to Jesus as a good teacher, verse 17. Revealing that he didn't recognize Jesus as God. And he had asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Revealing there was something he thought he could do. And so Jesus engages him the way you and I must engage sinners, by correcting bad theology. Causing him to think about not only Jesus' identity, his perfect identity as God, but also the realistic assessment of this man's own identity. Any of you that have read Calvin's Institutes understand that Calvin opens up by saying that we cannot know God apart from knowing ourselves, and we cannot know ourselves apart from knowing God. Those two things go hand in hand. In John 17, Jesus described the essence of eternal life as this, it's to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life means knowing the Father through the Son, for He is the one Jesus who makes God known. And in order for this man to truly know God, he must first come to truly know himself. And so what does Jesus do? He reminds this man of the commandments of God. Why? For this reason, as a test to see if this man still thinks he measured up to the standards of God's goodness. 
And so Jesus lists the second table. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Listen to this. Before Jesus ever gave the gospel, he gave this man the law. Because apart from the law of God, man will not see the exceeding sinfulness of his sin. Just as there is one gospel, and just as there is one God, there is also one law. One law. The problem with this man was not the law, or his attempt to obey the law. He was just like most Jews of his day. He did not pursue the law by faith. The law is only our enemy if we don't pursue it by faith. He was pursuing a works oriented righteousness and as Paul says in Romans 9 32 they the Jews stumbled over the stumbling stone this man was stumbling over Christ in his question he was blind to his need for Christ he was focused on his obedience to the law he was like the apostle Paul was prior to Paul's conversion remember Paul used to brag about himself before his conversion circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That was this man. And Paul was converted and he said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This man wasn't to that point yet. Now before we note the rich young ruler's response, please notice Jesus' method of engagement. He repeats the law here, number one, because he is not denying that some men are not better than others. There are even pagans in the world, if we're honest, who are honest people, who are hardworking, who are loyal, who are law-abiding citizens, who do good for others through civic duties or charitable causes. The law is not the problem. The problem is the motivation of the heart. Do they do those things out of a love for God or out of a love for self? Jesus is also not denying common grace, the common grace of God's law. And it is true that there is sort of a built-in thing with the law. It's, It's designed in such a way, it's almost like gravity, that the law, when you obey it, yields positive results. Jesus obviously is not against the law. Jesus obviously is upholding the law. He recognizes it as a good thing, as a holy thing, as a righteous thing. But what he wants this man to see is that God rejects people who try to obey the law in a way that doesn't give glory to God. In a way that only obeys it outwardly and not inwardly. Someone who by the Spirit has not had the law of God written on their heart. Someone who has not been made a new creation. Someone who has not been forgiven for their sin. All Christians forgiven of sin. All true Christians don't hate the law. They delight in the law. They embrace the law. The law has been written on their hearts. They're a new creation and now they obey that law out of gratitude. So please hear me out on this. Jesus lists these laws because clearly he's not against law. He's engaging this man to think along these lines because the law of God will expose his sin. 
Now notice something else about verse 19. Did you notice that not all Ten Commandments are listed there? In fact, Jesus only mentions the second table of the law. That is the table of the law that summarizes our love for our neighbor. There's a reason to that, and we'll get to that in a moment. But part of the reason that Jesus lists the second table is found in his ordering of the laws. He mentions do not murder, that's commandment 6. He mentions do not commit adultery, commandment 7. Do not steal, that's commandment 8. Do not bear false witness, that's commandment 9. Do not defraud, that's a form of do not covet, uh, commandment number 10. But then he lists honor your father and mother as the last commandment. Now, I have not read in any of the commentaries that I have read for this particular portion of Scripture what I'm getting ready to tell you, but um, I will tell you this. Most commentators are absolutely perplexed as to why Jesus would list the fifth commandment as the tenth. I think it is because this man was influenced by the scribes and Pharisees. You remember the scribes and Pharisees? They would pronounce their money Corban so they would not have to support their parents. I think this man really thinks he is holy. He has committed his money to God. He's a lover of his own money. He's not a lover of his parents. And not only that, he's not as good as you may think. Because notice how Jesus calls the 10th commandment defrauding. Do not defraud. That's slightly different than the wording the Bible uses in the Old Testament. Do not covet. But there's a principle of defrauding others that flows from the 10th commandment. Let me give it to you. Exodus 20, 12, excuse me, Leviticus 19, 13 says, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. Deuteronomy 24, verses 14 and 15 is another example of that. If you want a New Testament example, turn with me over to James chapter 5. Verses 1 through 4, this is written to the church. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, listen to this, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. See, coveting, what rightly belongs to another can result in manipulative planning, conspiring, defrauding. For example, withholding from a laborer what is due to them. In such a case, it makes one guilty of double sin, coveting, and stealing, defrauding. This man and all of his business endeavors, is it really possible that he never ever defrauded anybody? That he never ever manipulated anybody to make an extra dollar? Jesus can read hearts. This is the principle of James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Jesus wants this man to think very deeply, not in a shallow way, 
about whether or not he truly matches up to the standards of God's law. Remember, Jesus said, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do you get into heaven on a scale from 1 to 10? What do you think you have to have? The answer is a 10. You have to be perfect. That is Jesus' point. Kingdom evangelism involves preaching God's law, upholding God's law, promoting God's law. This is absolutely critical. Declaring God's law reveals sin. Romans 3.24, By the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. When a sinner sees that he is a sinner, he doesn't try to work his way to heaven. Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Galatians 2.16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Philippians 3.9, Paul says, I want to be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Titus 3.5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. But this man's problem was that he thought he was good enough. So Jesus preaches the law to him. I just want to say this, if you love sinners, you will not act indifferently to their destructive and dangerous behavior just in order to simply avoid offending them. That's what the church says we are to do today, right? It's called the new tolerance. We have to tolerate every lifestyle. We've got to tolerate every belief system. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't, matter. we don't care if we offend God, but we don't want to offend the sinner. You cannot effectively evangelize if you don't offend the sinner. The law of God will offend the sinner. The gospel will offend the sinner. That is the point so that they come to the end of themselves and they recognize it is not by works of the law that I am saved. It's only by the grace of Christ. Tolerance says, you must agree with me. Love responds, I must do something harder. I'll tell you the truth because I'm convinced the truth will set you free. Tolerance says, you must approve of what I do. True love responds, I must do something harder. I will love you even when your behavior offends me. And I'll tell you the truth. Tolerance says, you must allow me to have my way. Love responds, I must do something harder. I'll plead with you to follow the right way because I believe you're worth the risk. Tolerance seeks to be inoffensive. Love takes risks. Tolerance is indifferent. Love is active. Tolerance costs nothing. Love costs everything. And Jesus is purposely offending this man because he loves him. He loves him. A true disciple 
will love the law of God, not because they think that the law of God gets them into heaven, but because they understand their wickedness and their sinfulness in light of the law of God. And a true believer will embrace that law and want to obey that law after placing faith in Christ. You cannot have a Savior apart from a cross and you cannot have a true Christian apart from the crown of Christ. When we preach the gospel, when we engage sinners, we must preach Jesus not only as Savior but also as King. This man needed to repent of his sin and he would not repent unless he saw that he had broken God's law, that God requires obedience to his law, perfection. We must preach Christ as Savior and also Christ as King. We must preach the law and the gospel. We must, must preach the substitution of Christ and also submission to Christ. But the rich young ruler focused on his own submission to the law apart from faith in Christ. That was his problem. The law was not his problem. The law was his friend meant to reveal his sin. His problem was he thought he was good enough to obey the law, which revealed a very low view of the law of God, a very high view of himself. He would never get into the kingdom unless he could see his imperfection and his sin. So Jesus engages him, correcting his theology. Upholding the law of God. Jesus does not preach easy believism. Jesus says you must repent of your sin. You must recognize your sin. Three principles about evangelism. Number one, the encounter principle. Number two, the engagement principle. Notice with me number three, the evaluation principle. Verses 20 through 22. Verse 20 gives to us the response of the rich young ruler and he said to him, Teacher, all these, that is all these laws, I have kept from my youth. What? He just superficially shrugs off the law of God. That's not a big deal. In fact, Matthew says he even asked this question. What do I still lack? I've done all these things from my youth. What do I still lack? He was rich. He probably had many employees. He had likely defrauded them. He had likely written off his parents. He wasn't honoring his father and his mother. There was a whole lot of laws this man had broken, outwardly and inwardly. He had manipulated the law like the scribes and Pharisees to look religious. This is not the attitude of a true Christian. Flippancy toward the law of God, that is not the attitude of a true Christian. Many people today say they're Christians. Many people today are just like this man. Oh yes, the gospel has freed me from the law of God. I'm beyond that now. As I grow as a Christian, I don't need the law of God. That's not something a strong Christian says. That's something a weak Christian or non-Christian says. You can never grow beyond the law of God. 
The law of God does not draw us away from Christ. It draws us to Christ as Christians because the law reveals our sinfulness, causing us to struggle and fight with sin and to confess our sin and to confess with the greatest Christian that ever lived, the Apostle Paul, these words, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? But thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was not against the law of God. He knew the law of God couldn't save him, but he never had an attitude toward the law like this man. Oh yeah, I've already obeyed all of that. Paul said the law is holy and righteous and good. The law of God is God's one standard. And as Christians, we must embrace not only the cross, but also the crown of Christ. This man is just proving, the further we get into this episode, this man is proving how far away from the kingdom he is. In actuality, he doesn't love the law of God. In actuality, he doesn't understand the law of God. The law has not even revealed his own sin. All these laws I have kept from my youth. Sort of ironic because he's still acting like a youth. He's acting like a child. A childish view of the law. The law... Uh, yeah, the law says don't do this, don't do that. That's kid stuff. I've done all of that. I've done all of that since my bar mitzvah, since I was a youth, when I turned 13 and I became a son of the commandment. I mean, this is what marks my life. Look at me. I am a rich, young ruler. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He was very clear. It's inward and outward obedience to the law in every part of one's life that God cares about. This man has a shallow view of the law. And a shallow view of the law always leads to a shallow view of what is good and thus a shallow view of one's depravity. What does Jeremiah say? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This man was so influenced by the scribes and Pharisees who said they had a high view of the law, but in actuality had a low view of the law because they thought they could obey all of it and earn their way to heaven. In fact, Jewish experts tell us that Jews possessed the ability, without exception, to fulfill God's commandments, and this was so firmly rooted in rabbinical teaching that in all seriousness, they spoke of people who had kept the entire Torah from A to Z. That was this man. I've kept all these laws from my youth. Today is Father's Day, and I have many wonderful memories of my dad. He is now an elder in a Presbyterian church and has always been very evangelistic. I used to, as a kid, go with him and the pastor of our church uh, on Saturdays to witness at the homes of people in our community. And many times I'd go with the pastor and my dad would go by himself, but sometimes I'd go with my dad. We'd go into these homes and my dad was always really good at asking diagnostic questions. Just like Jesus asks in this passage, and if I heard him ask it once, I heard him ask it a million times, he would look at a sinner and he would say, if you were to die tonight and stand before God, and God were to say to you, why should I allow you into my heaven, what would you say? Well, inevitably, they, they would always say something like, well, I, I, I don't do bad things. I, I try to help people out. I love my children. I'm a good parent. 
And my dad would always get him. He'd point him to Revelation 21, and he would read where it says, all liars have their part in the lake of fire. And then my dad would say, have you ever told a white lie? Even a white lie sends you to hell. Because if you've broken one part of the law, you've broken all of it. What was he doing? He's using the law to expose the guilt of the sinner. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is sizing up the rich young ruler, evaluating him, seeing what his problem is to show him that, okay, you think you're good, you have to be perfect to enter the kingdom of God. We need to have that ability as we evangelize to evaluate the true spiritual condition of the one we are witnessing to. Jesus has done that. Jesus is spot on in diagnosing this man's problem. So you know what he does next? He provides a homework assignment to this man. Notice verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I just want to stop for a moment and ask you, do you genuinely love other sinners? Do you genuinely love other unbelievers? I mean, here is this man who arrogantly thought he could earn salvation, and the text says Jesus loved him. How much did Jesus love sinners? Mark 6.34, when he saw the crowds, he had what? Compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. This is a type of love that honestly evaluated his condition. He's looking at him. The Greek word is emblepo. It's intensified in a compound Greek word that means to look intently, to examine. It could literally mean to scrutinize. Jesus is evaluating this man. He loves him not by looking past his sins, but by facing them head on. That in spite of his arrogance, this man's arrogance, in spite of his ignorance, in spite of the fact that he has no clue he's talking to God himself, in spite of the fact that he doesn't see the depth of his own sin, Jesus loved him. A type of love that honestly evaluated his condition and yet still loved him. Also a type of love that loved him for his morality even though his morality didn't save him. There, there is a type of Love that we are to have for those in the world when they live moral lives. It's easier to love someone who lives a moral life than someone who lives a decadent life. In fact, John Calvin in his commentary speaks about these different types of love that we are to have toward others. Calvin says, and I quote, to distinguish the degrees of love is a matter of importance. It may be enough to state briefly that God embraces in fatherly love none but his children whom he has regenerated with the spirit of adoption and that it is in consequence of this love that they are accepted. In this sense, to be loved by God and to be justified in his sight are synonymous terms. But Calvin, John Calvin, goes on to say, God is sometimes said to love those whom he does not approve or justify. 
For since the preservation of the human race is agreeable to him, which consists in justice, moderation, prudence, fidelity, temperance, he is said to love those virtues, not that they are meritorious of salvation or of grace, but that they have reference to an end of which he approves, insofar as he had bestowed on them outward righteousness, and that for the general advantage of the world, he loved his own work in them. But as their heart was impure, the outward semblance of righteousness was of no avail for obtaining saving righteousness." He goes on to say, For we know that by faith alone hearts are purified, and that the spirit of uprightness is given to members of Christ alone. Thus the question is answered, How was it possible that Christ should love a man, rich young ruler, that's who Calvin's talking about, who was proud and a hypocrite, while nothing is more hateful to God than these two vices? Calvin says, For it is not inconsistent that the good seed which God had implanted in some natures shall be loved by him, and yet that he should reject their person's and works on account of corruption. Calvin says that Jesus loved this man in spite of his sin. Type of love that honestly evaluated the man's condition. It didn't wink at his sin, but a type of love that loved him for his morality, even though his morality didn't save him. And also a type of love that wasn't afraid to take the risk of telling the truth because Jesus looked at him, gazing at him with affectionate eyes to communicate his love for him, but then he doesn't hold back. He recommends that this man do something that he knows is impossible for this man to do on his own. Verse 21, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. I love this because this is love and truth, isn't it? Calvinists of all people should be the most loving of any Christian group. They should be the most sympathetic to the most vile of sinners, even loving them and commending them in a sense for their morality, but making it clear that even your morality will damn you apart from Christ. Yes, it's a good thing you obey the law of God. Yes, it's a good thing that you're faithful to your spouse. Yes, it's a good thing that you love your children. Yes, it's a good thing that you have a good work ethic. Yes, it's a good thing that you give back to the community. But even those good things will damn you. That is what Jesus is doing with this man. He has evaluated this man's condition. He knows this man inside and out. He's not throwing the man away. He's not hating the man. He's not being hateful to the man. He is recognizing good qualities within the man. And yet at the end of the day, he's saying, look, none of this goodness will do anything to get you into the kingdom of God except this one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give it to the poor and then you'll have treasure in heaven. That's what you want me to do? Now, Let me be clear what Jesus did not mean by this. This is not some universal rule to follow. Jesus is not saying that any who want to have salvation have to become financially poor, take a vow of poverty. You know what I call that? That's modern day Francis Chan theology. And if you listen to Francis Chan, cancel that YouTube subscription Because he is dangerous, he teaches this sort of thing. You know what that is? That is Gnosticism. That is teaching that somehow it is sinful to be rich. It is not sinful to be rich. Many rich people will be in heaven and many poor people will be in hell. Jesus is not saying take a vow of poverty to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not telling 
Christians, that we need to divest ourselves from private property, that we need to live in perpetual poverty, that we need to become ascetic. That is Gnosticism. That is trying to achieve salvation by what you don't have. That's not what Jesus is teaching. What he is teaching lies in that phrase, treasure in heaven. You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. This means seeing one's spiritual poverty and seeking the riches of Christ in the gospel. That is what he's telling this man. For this man, that meant selling all that he had and giving it to the poor. That was this man's test of being a true disciple of Christ. You want to prove it? Go sell all you have and show how valuable Christ is to you above all of that. Show that you truly love your neighbor as yourself. Show that you truly love the law of God and that you love God and give it to the poor. And when you do that, then you are ready to come and follow me. You lack one thing. The one thing he lacked, listen to this, was that he refused to repent from the idol of materialism and wealth. That was this man's problem, and that's exactly what Jesus is telling him. Jesus is not saying you can work your way to heaven by going and doing this one thing. Jesus is telling him to repent of his love for wealth, his idolatry. Earlier in verse 19, Jesus had listed the second table, right? of the law, all the commandments to speak about how you're to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, indirectly now, Jesus is speaking about the first table of the law. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He was telling this man, you are an idolater. You love wealth. This man loved his wealth more than God. It had become an idol. And it actually affected his ability to keep the law like he claimed he could. Now he knew he wasn't perfect. Now he knew he was a transgressor of the law of God. Now he knew he really wasn't loving the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor as himself. He was a perpetual violator of the first commandment. He had another God before him, and that was money. He was a violator of the first table, he was a violator of the second table. This test that Jesus gave him in verse 21, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Listen to me, this was not a test of obedience, this was a test of faith, was it not? It was his wealth that kept him from taking the risk of faith, a simple childlike faith like Jesus had mentioned Back in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He wasn't really focused on eternal life. Why? How do we know that? Because he was consumed by the things of this life. The things of this life he could see. God he couldn't see. And so he clung to the things that he could see instead of the God he couldn't see because to cling to a God you can't see requires faith. And this man had none of it. This was a call by Christ for this man to forsake everything and to place his full faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happened, he would obey the law out of gratitude. He would willingly give up everything to follow Christ. Mark my words, gold was this man's God. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Oh yeah. 
He went to the synagogue every Sabbath, worshiping the Lord. But what did he do all week? All week he thought about his wealth. All week he thought about how he could make more money. His money ranked ahead of God. He may have outwardly kept the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, but inwardly his heart was a bank vault of money that he would not unlock and give up to God or give up to others. He was deceived thinking that his money was his and not God's. This man understood he was a sinner because Jesus was effective in evaluating his condition and convincing the man of his condition. This man knew it. How do we know that he knew it? Because of verse 22. What does it say? Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He was sorrowful. Why? Because he knew what to do and he refused to do it. Why? Because he had great possessions. He had real estate, property, that he wanted to make money on. In the Greek, it's identifying his wealth in property. He was a receiver of the things of this world. The land of this world, but not the land of heaven. He walked away. Hebrews 11.26 tells us that Moses counted disgrace for the sake of Christ is greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. This man was looking at some earthly reward he could gain by selling a piece of property and therefore he forsook the reward of heaven. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says, and I quote, Moses calculated on the basis of eternal arithmetic, but this young man relied on the inaccurate calculator he had always used, the calculator of wealth, and he stands as a perpetual monument to the fact that we have everything but have not Christ, we ultimately have nothing. Verse 22 teaches us that the rich young ruler had physical wealth. It also teaches us that he was devoid of spiritual wealth. Did he obey the law? Yeah, to some degree. But did he pass the test? Nope. He walked away. Never entering the kingdom of God. What does this teach us? Well, for one, understand this. Faithfulness does not always equal successfulness in one-on-one evangelism battles. The victory is God's in the final analysis. Did it escape your notice that Jesus witnessed to someone who rejected the gospel? Every time you witness for Christ, this is not a notch in your belt. This is not something you do in the works of the flesh. It is only the power of God that will save a soul when that soul is elect. And yet it didn't stop Jesus from preaching to a man that he likely knew wasn't elect because he knew every man's heart. Not only that, but we need to take the sovereign opportunities God provides, the evangelism encounters he provides us, 
as divine appointments. Jesus had time for this encounter. We must take time. Witnessing to others takes time. This is not something that occurs in one conversation usually, but a relationship. Jesus no doubt would have walked with this man and talked with this man more, but it was this man that walked away from Jesus. Jesus didn't walk away from him. Third, we need to trust God's sovereignty and be willing, listen to this, to let people walk away. Do not compromise the gospel by giving a truncated message, by promoting some easy believism, by trying to convince someone to say some prayer, to sign some card. That is not true salvation. And if you want, if you want what a shallow presentation of the gospel looks like in a broad American way, just look at the Southern Baptist Convention. For years they have preached a shallow gospel and there are goats all among them. They don't even know how to define what a pastor is because they're not biblical enough to look at the Bible to see what the Bible says a pastor is. They're not even smart enough or biblically astute enough to understand that the office of pastor is meant not for a woman but for a man. How do you expect the largest Protestant denomination in the world to faithfully preach the gospel when they cannot even rightly define who should hold the office of pastor who is a minister of the gospel. Jesus let this man walk away. This is not about numbers. This is not about how many baptisms. The sovereignty of God is in control of who gets into the kingdom. And finally, this teaches us that we need to examine our own hearts for idols, right? That's what we'll talk about next week. This rich young ruler, how sad. How sad it would be to be like him, to hear a sermon on evangelism and yet not possess the evangel, not possess the good news. Many have gone to seminary and passed man's eye test and yet failed God's heart test. You need to begin with this question. The question is not, what have you given up for Christ? The question is this, what are you not willing to give up for Christ? Because your answer to that question, whatever that thing may be, may be the thing that keeps you out of the kingdom of God. It may be the thing that prevents you from inheriting eternal life. We do not get to heaven based upon what we do. We don't get to heaven based upon our good works. We do not get to heaven based upon our obedience to the law. But a true believer will be such a repenter that he will forsake anything and everything to follow Christ and he will delight in the law of God because a true Christian out of gratitude wants to do nothing more than to honor God and to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Idolaters do not enter the kingdom of heaven. This man was a good man ruler of the synagogue, elder in the synagogue, successful businessman, had everything going for him, and yet he never entered the kingdom of God. He thought that by his good works he could enter. He had such a low view of God's law and such a low view of his own depravity. It kept him from the kingdom of God. What sin will keep you from the kingdom of God? Whatever it is, repent of it. Repent of it. 
so you can enter the kingdom of God. And do this for me. The next time you encounter an unbeliever, love them, spend time with them, get to know them, recognize them for who they are, evaluate them, preach to them the law and the gospel and pray that God would be pleased to draw his elect to himself. He will always, always be faithful to do that. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Lord, about what it means to be an evangelist for you. What it means to be a witness for you. We're all called to that. It's not just full-time preachers. We as the church, the body of Christ, are called to be witnesses for you, to go into the highways and the byways of this world, Lord, and to preach Christ crucified. Lord, to draw others to you by preaching the law, by upholding the law of God. Lord, by that law breaking them of their sin, revealing their sin as a mirror so that they might be true repenters being willing to forsake everything to follow you. That's what you call us to. And the evidence of true discipleship is that we're willing to give up anything and everything to be your follower because we love you. We love your law so much that we recognize we have broken it. We love Christ so much we recognize he obeyed that law. We don't want to do anything that brings shame to you. And because we have experienced so rich a salvation, we agree with Ezekiel 33 and your words that you do not desire the death of the wicked. You do not delight in it. Father, may we be strong evangelists for you, loving the lost, loving sinners, pointing them to Christ. Forgive us where we have been unfaithful. Forgive us where we have been harsh with unbelievers when we ought not to be. On the one hand, and on the other hand, when we've compromised, when we've been too soft, help us to have the balance of love and truth just as Jesus exemplified for us in this text. We'll give you the praise and the glory. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church History, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.